stupid me. I thought I programmed the song, but I guess it ain't playing. Hello, and <laughs> after uh, a two a two week, almost it feels like forever, about a one week absence, we're back. Let's just say yeah. we got. Let's just say our medical problems come up and said, "Hey, we gonna kick your ass at the same time." I'm like, oh, yeah. Uh, yes, and uh, for for the record, for all of our fans and listeners, neither one of us had COVID. We, uh, but we do both have pre-existing conditions that coalesced uh, on the on the same uh, couple of weeks. So that's why we've been off the air. But we're back tonight with a special Halloween program. One of our special Halloween programs. Uh, yeah. And yeah. don't worry the story and uh good luck tonight to the guys at the KHF and all the people who are there tonight watching. Well, if you're there tonight, you're watching uh let's see uh The Howling. Uh, yeah, and Friday the 13th part 4. That's my favorite Friday the 13th. I don't know why uh, out of all the Friday the 13th movies, but part four is my absolute favorite. I, I don't know well, why. it has I the best actors just... in it. That's true. That's true. Well, it doesn't have Kevin Bacon. He dies in part one. <laughs> yeah. But, but, but yeah. Chris no, Glover just basically yeah. steals that movie. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think I love part four because... It, even though it starts off with a clip from part three with the camp, the counselor sitting around the campfire telling the kids, you know, oh, I don't want to scare you, but you need to know about Jason. Even though that's a clip from part three, I, I think it sets the tone for part four way better by having it as the opening scene even before the, the opening credits, you know? Yeah. Yeah, so I don't know. That, and, that, that's a big uh, part of it for me. I'm also happy because I got my package in the Kino Lorber sale. I only spent Ooh, yeah. like 18 bucks, not counting shipping. And let's mm-hmm. see what I got here. Oh, well, yeah. Uh, Baby Blood, the French uh, splatter film, which I've never gotten before, even though I love the film. Why? Because I didn't have the English dub on it. And what makes the English yeah. dub special, special, Steve? Mm-hmm. Everybody likes the original. Well, the alien, the monster in Italian has this weird, creepy, like, nasal voice. And they hired this guy who was a pretty decent big name at the time when the movie came out in uh, 1990. And he did it uncredited because he liked the script. And who was it? Gary freaking Oldman. <laughs> yes. And he gives an amazing performance. I mean, if you wonder how he got so seductive in Dracula, watch the English dub of Baby Blood. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And and you're right. Like, uh that's like one of those little pieces of trivia that like movie nerds like us know about. But even if you didn't know, if you just watched that, you wouldn't, even if you didn't know that it was Gary Oldman, you'd be like, I like this, you know, this, I I like this voice. This is, you know, like, so, you know, I've been watching squid game or I watched 
Squid Game, which everyone is all crazy about. I don't know why. I didn't care that much for it, but that's a whole different episode. But um, but yeah, one of the things that annoyed me most about it was that I watched it with both. This is what I often do with foreign films and foreign TV shows. I watched it with the subtitles and the uh, and the um, translate, you know, uh, you know, the voice over as well. So yeah. I, I often do that just to see the difference between like what the person is actually saying versus how we translate it. But the voices, I'm just like, I, I, that was one of the big things that just tore me out of that whole TV show was like, the, I didn't believe any of the voices. I was like, Nope, whoever you got to do these, you know, no. Nope. Don't buy yeah, it. That's not that guy's the voice. the most important thing there is. <clears throat> like, I couldn't, yeah. see, I couldn't see watching Psycho without Anthony Perkins' voice in it. Yeah, right? And I, I wonder about that a lot of times, too. Like, you and I were talking before the show about how um, I watch a lot of those uh, Fox Sunday night comedy cartoons like Bob's Burgers and, and you know... Uh, Family Guy, Simpsons, and at the at the very end of the credits, they always list the people who do the voices in uh, in Spanish. And I I think I would love to see like an episode like I've seen every episode of The Simpsons so many times. I think it would be fun to go back and watch an episode that I've seen a hundred times in Spanish just to see like. And I, you know, I you and I have talked about this before. Abby and I, my wife Abby and I, we both speak Spanish. So we would understand it. And, and if it was an episode that I had already seen a thousand times, I'd be like, that's not exactly how they said it in the episode. <laughs> well, they had to change the Bumblebee guy's voice because he does speak Spanish in the English version. But if you know Spanish, he's actually saying some of the filthiest dialogue you can think of. <laughs> right? Uh, like so, that one right, time he look- hits his knee He's like oh my fucking knee Oh and the other <laughs> one I got Real quick is uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Channa Jamie Blacksmith Yes I know it's not a horror film But I hypocrited my way Into buying it by saying Oh yeah it's got a bloody axe On the cover So I can <laughs> both hit my way And saying yes it's horror and then I yeah. said, no, think I about the white Australian colonists. Yes, this was a horror film to them. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah, I haven't I haven't gotten anything new. Uh I haven't gotten anything new lately as far as uh movies are concerned. Uh I I have bet, uh I think I told you last time we uh we talked uh the art theater down the street from where Abby and I live had a Wes Anderson film festival. So every night they showed a different Wes Anderson movie. So that was pretty cool. We went down and saw um, the Royal Tenenbaums, you know, which is obviously like Abby's favorite director is Wes Anderson. So we have all of his movies on Blu-ray and DVD, but you know, just the fact that we got to see it on the big screen was pretty cool. But, uh, I was actually kind of disappointed in the print. It was like a, you know, like a 35 millimeter print, which I thought would look really nice, but it didn't really pop on the screen. The colors didn't really come through. And that's, 
you know, that's one of Wes Anderson's defining characteristics as a director is that the colors well, who knows are really many... vibrant, you know. Well, after as old as that film is, is people don't people are spoiled with streaming and Blu-rays, how the colors and the black and whites really pop on it, and they forget yeah. that after ten years, all prints <laughs> look like well-used whores. <laughs> you know, yeah. you know and I've noticed. I can tell the bumps. I'm just talking fade. I I can tell the difference at this theater. There's only two theaters in this building, and they always show one current film, which they'll show in its, like, digital capacity, whatever version they're sent, you know. And then in the other theater, they always show an older film that's actually on 30 millimeter or 35 millimeter or 70 millimeter. They have the projectors. But you're right. Um, a lot of times I'll go see a second run and be like, ah, oh, this doesn't really look that good. But you're right. I, I am spoiled because I, you know, I mean, every fucking viewing device in my house is 4K, you know, from my computer to my TV to my tablet to my phone. Like, I can watch anything and it's like, wow, this looks beautiful. It could be you know, once upon a time in America, you know, a, a movie from the seventies. And I'd be like, Oh, look how nice this looks. 80s. But then I, yeah. Eighties. Yeah. But you know what I'm saying? If I went and yeah. saw that in the theater, you're right. If they showed me a 70 millimeter print of it in the theater, I'd be like, wow, this looks okay. But, uh, you know, uh, but it's not, not that crystal clarity that I yeah. have at home in, like in, in my man. It's like uh, when the, I've seen The Hateful Eight in the theater. Uh, yes, we're getting Tarantino stuff. At the first, they didn't have it balanced right, so there was that shimmy and shake that you remember sometimes you saw when the print wasn't balanced right on the reels. Yeah, yeah. And everyone else was like, oh, man. And there was me <laughs> with one single tear of joy running <laughs> down my face <laughs> you're like oh man if if the reel cuts off halfway through the movie and they have to put up one of those you know yeah <laughs> you know so please uh, technical difficulties while we re <laughs> yeah see uh, like like kids nowadays will never know that because everything is digital when you go to the theater now. So you don't see the film damage. You don't get the snaps and the, you know, the, the breaks for, <laughs> Oh, sorry. We screwed up. We never we'll get, rarely we'll get... got them, but that's why they're nostalgic to us. Cause if they happened all the time, we would fucking be pissed off and hate them. <laughs> well, you know, I grew up in New Jersey, so some of my earliest experiences uh, going to the movies when I was old enough to drive into New York City with my friends, we went to 42nd Street back when 42nd Street showed like, you know, the classic 42nd Street that you and I fantasize about to this day, you know, kung fu movies and we we couldn't get into the porno movies or the porno stores, but, you know, we, we went down there to watch horror movies and 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 kung fu movies and yeah, it, if the film broke or if it just stopped for a minute and they and they were, they did come over the announcements, you know, like 
Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we're having a little difficulty right now, but we will get it fixed as soon as possible. Please uh, find your way to the snack bar or use the restroom, and we'll uh, we'll get this back on as soon as possible. Everyone would just start being like, boo, throwing their popcorn and their fucking milk duds at the screen, like. Yeah. They just said they're they just said they're trying to fix it, man. Like chill yeah. out. <laughs> like what the uh, fuck? <laughs> but you know how rare it is, you know, people are like, Oh, this year changed everything. This year changed everything. But we're in a rare year, nineteen sixty, where you can say this movie or this year changed how people watch movies. And changed yes, the direction indeed. of horror. Yeah. yeah, this did. This, and this is not me exaggerating. This low budget film shot in between seasons of the Alfred Hitchcock show by the Alfred Hitchcock hero, he, uh, a television crew and a script written by the guy who does, uh, who was doing a lot of the scripts for the television show. Yes, uh, that was uh, one of the key issues or one of the key uh, components or parts of this story um, is that the the studios wasn't really behind the whole idea of this film. And then Hitchcock was like, well, what if I brought my crew over from the TV show that you're already paying for? And I use that crew and I film it in black and white. So it'll be cheap. And um, I do believe I've read a number of books on this subject. And I do believe that even in the end, the studio was kind of reticent and they didn't really want him to do that, but he did a lot of the stuff on the down low and <laughs> yeah, they did. Well, he yeah, had that you know. crew so fine tuned that, and if we read yeah. books, he does it. He could just twitch a finger and the whole crew would move and know what the fuck to do. Janet right? Lee said yeah. until she got used to that, she thought this is some fucked up shit. And then she <laughs> seen what was going on, and she's like, oh, beautiful. It ended up being one of her favorite filming experiences. Yeah, I have a, I have a feeling, and I don't know. Uh, again, I've read a lot of books about Kubrick as well, but I have a feeling that, like, Kubrick was highly influenced by Alfred Hitchcock. I think that uh, they no, both had that whole... Alfred Hitchcock like, would have been pissed off if he... If, uh, he had to shoot as many t- takes as Kubrick liked hmm. to. I don't, yeah, I don't mean in that capacity. I just mean that, like, Hitchcock had everything so laid out in his mind that he knew exactly what he wanted, but he wasn't as impatient as Kubrick. But I think Kubrick was similar in thought, where he would plan out a shot exactly as he wanted it, but he was just more nitpicky, whereas Hitchcock had... I think Hitchcock had more faith in his actors. And I think that, I think that's a big problem with Kubrick. I think a lot of that, uh, those, that shooting over and over and over and over and over again, I think had more to do with either Kubrick was either he was self-conscious about his directing style, which is ridiculous because every movie he put out was, you know, just drooled over by film critics and fans alike. So I don't know why that would be, but who knows? Everyone and has their 
film Mental did Robinson. not get one Oscar nod, which is sort of bullshit. If not for the film itself, which was beautifully shot, for the score, which we'll talk about, and it's fucking great. Yep. Or Joseph yep. Stefano's great script. Yes. Uh, and, you know, and, I mean, we'll talk about this all all during the, the movie. Uh, you want to start watching it now, and we'll talk about it yeah, as we go? Yeah, we'll talk about that. And we're yeah. at Universal Logo, and start yep. the film when we get to zero. Five, four, three. What the hell? Two, <laughs> one, zero, start now. No. <laughs> Go. Uh, the Universal logo. <laughs> we would put the logo we put in the film back in 1960, but fuck that. We want to put our new one on there, which looks uh, like shit. <laughs> Now, of course, we all know this is a, a yeah, great uh, Saul, Saul Bass uh, opening credit sequence. Oh, God, yeah. Really One sweet. of the top five credit sequences. And that yeah, music, I love. it's just strings. If you notice, there's some other ones, but it's just all sharp strings. Yeah. It's, Yeah. It's and people great. really uh, didn't notice that, but did you notice it's showing the people who actually star in the movie when the whole trailers and everything was focused on Janet Lee? Yeah, and that's a big uh, issue, you know, that or a big part of what, uh, you know, we're going to talk about, I, I assume. I mean, we haven't discussed this ahead of time, but that was a big reason why Psycho changed the way that we watch movies up until this point in history you could pay and go into the movie theater at any time during the film and you could sit and watch it from the middle of the movie movie until the end end of the movie movie. yeah and and then and then you could sit there and start watching it again you only had to pay once and you could go in and sit there and watch the movie and a big part of the reason why they change that policy was because of Psycho. Well, but this is I don't the first to, film I, to you know, put that in the contract of the rental yeah. that you had to, you know, if you don't yeah. come in within the first five minutes, then fuck you. Okay. here Now, here's one thing that I love about this movie. It starts off with this wide shot of the city, right? Yeah, and it Yeah, this is a joke on the dragnet thing coming up the <laughs> titles. Phoenix, Arizona. <laughs> but I, I love the like fact that... It don't look like that anymore. I got family out there. I have family in Arizona, but uh, Tucson. But no, the thing I love about that is that's a brilliant direction. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's a but 
But the overall direction is it's a brilliant technique because it shows you the city and then it shows you a small cluster of buildings and then one building and then it goes into this one room. And I think that was something that Hitchcock was really great at when it comes to directing is he was able to, uh, you know, uh, think about movies like Vertigo or uh, or Rear Window he was really good at being able to draw you into one yeah. person's life while while also showing you their place in the larger world. And I think that's one of the best examples yeah. of that in a in a Hitchcock oh movie. Oh my god. Like I said, just, you know. It's married people fucking and they enjoyed uh-huh. it. Uh-huh. Yeah, but she's still innocent cuz she's got the white bra on now. I know, but she's an she's an innocent young lady. She's yeah. gonna lick the stamps. She she's gonna lick the stamps. <laughs> well, there's no stamp linking, but I'm sure that he put a deposit in her mailbox. <laughs> John Gavin and Janet Lee. I mean, this stuff was shocking for 1960. The studio didn't like this from the get go. Oh, my God, you can't have the female lead in there. Enjoy sex. <laughs> We're, we haven't even gotten to the most shocking scene in this movie yet, and I'm not going to spoil it for people who haven't seen the movie, but when it happens, I'll let you know, because there's a scene so shocking in this movie that it was censored in later television viewings. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Viewings is that was that what I'm trying to say? Holy shit, man! I I ate a bunch of mushrooms but before the show, the and I'm, tri- I'm tripping thing. pretty hard. Yeah, but the funniest thing about the the remake, which kind which really sucked, is on Gus Van Zant's uh, a commentary. He's like, "How can you tell that a gay man did this remake?" And the person who was helping Gus has come to say, I don't know how. You have a giant close-up of of Hugo, uh, what's his name, the star, that in the first five minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Yeah. Hey, something went wrong. My copy of Psycho just froze up. Okay. Um... Well, we're still just Hold at up. the scene where they're talking. Technical difficulties. We gotta love it. But yeah, now we're just getting to the part where it was sort of hinting that she would never have a life because whenever Marion brings up she wants to get serious, uh, John Gavin's character right here is him and Holland. Oh, man. I got all these bills from my ex-wife. I got this stove. Yeah, that, <laughs> we can't get yeah, serious. That, <laughs> I can't. We can't afford it. And all she that wants was to the, be is a respectable wife. Yeah, that's what I was getting at. Where I said she's. Uh, she says, "Oh, I'll lick the stamps." Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when he says, "Oh, I have to go and pay all these bills." All right, let me see. I'm trying yeah, to get it back way, on. Yeah, in a way, it's 
nowadays we're looking at him, we're like, yeah, motherfucker, you just want some pussy in another town yeah. so you can just come up and hit it and then go, oh, who's the guy in the cowboy hat right there? Uh, it looks like Alfred Hitchcock to me. And who's the girl and at the desk? That says her husband's his, always giving that, her that, shit. That's Pat. That, that's, Al, that's Alfred Hitchcock's daughter, Pat. Yeah. Um, wife. And you know, wife. this is... Oh, wife? I thought it was his daughter. No, that's his wife, oh. Patricia. Um, no, so um, I was going to mention this before that uh, Hitchcock, you know, was famous for popping in and doing a cameo in every one of his movies, but he was so uh, excited about Psycho and so, like, dedicated to doing the best that he could with it, that he put himself in the, in that cameo early in the movie because he didn't want people looking for him for the entire movie. He wanted to get it out of the way as soon as possible and just say, okay, there you go. There's the Hitchcock cameo. Now what? Yeah. I think, I think he did the same thing in, uh, in the birds, right? The birds, uh, he, he walks out of the, or he walks by the department store with the two uh, donkeys. Yeah. Like really early in, in the movie. All right. I'm still okay. trying to catch up with you. Oh, don't <laughs> right, worry. We're on. just, we're right. Just at the part where the guy's bragging about his money. I, while you're catching yeah. up, I'll get into a little backstory. We got to go way back to uh, Plainsfield, Illinois. And this little, uh, news reporter named Robert Blotch who had just got mm-hmm. word from his police sources that they might be an interesting story up on one of the bachelor farmers farm, uh, bachelor farmer farms up there. So he went up there cause he was bored and tired of doing the little fluff pieces. And that's how he got involved in the case of Ed Gein. Yeah, and I... psychopath, uh... Yeah, and I I feel weird about this because, you know, everyone who knows me or listens to our podcast even knows that I'm really interested in, uh like cryptozoology, you know, Bigfoot, UFOs, Loch Ness Monster. I'm really interested in serial killers. Uh, you know, my wife even asks me frequently, you know, when I'm listening to serial killer podcasts or watching shows, she's like, so are you just trying to figure out how you're going to kill me? It's not that. But anyway, the point being, when I when people start talking to me about serial killers, I'm like, oh, my favorite serial killer was Ed Gein. Now, it's it's dubious to say that you have a favorite serial killer. You know, I mean, that makes you sound a yeah. little suspicious yourself. I oh, mean, I'm not, don't I, worry. You know. There's a lot of people that do that that are serial killers. But, yeah, he reported it for his paper, but the details of the case was so outrageous that uh, – and what free, what messed up uh, uh, Blotch is that he had pretty much a complete collection of Weird Tales magazine 
which had like three or four of his short stories. Right. So he decided to write a a novel about it. And that novel, Psycho, became like an instant bestseller. And interestingly enough, you say that, um, but that's another part of the psycho mythology was that once Hitchcock decided that he wanted to make the film and he knew, you know, he had the twist ending all planned out, uh, legend has it, I don't know if this is true or not, but legend has it that he sent people all around the country to buy up as many copies of Psycho as they could so that people could not read the book so they wouldn't know the twist ending. I don't know if that's true. Well, no, he bought copies of the book. It was for the crew. He wanted the crew to be, you know, what happened was that during the filming of the show, one of his, uh, it was the, a cameraman was reading the book between scenes and he would Hitchcock noticed that the guy was like enthralled by this book. So he asked him, what in the world are you reading? He's like, oh, it's Psycho. It's best based on the Ed Gein case. You might want to read it. It's a pretty good book. <laughs> right? So, so yeah, Hitchcock I, I don't read know. it. I don't, I don't, and I, shortly thereafter bought the rights. Oh. Uh, um, I don't know if we're at exactly the same point anymore in the movie because, like I said, my... I, my it's right... I'm right where she uh, is packing up after she's uh, borrowed the money. Right. Okay. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't know uh, exactly where we were at, but there is a scene I wanted to talk about. Um, I'm a little bit ahead of that, but yeah, I don't know what yeah. happened. My 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 DVD or my it Blu-ray player. Sometimes. But, don't worry. My Blu-ray froze up and then it was like weird i'm not that much further ahead of you but i just clicked next and it just skipped yeah this is yeah i I got the scene where she's packing up right now uh she's just pushing down on the suitcase and looking at the envelope i'm right where uh, uh she just got busted the scene that a certain director ripped off for pulp fiction Exactly. That was what I wanted to talk about. That's what I was going to say, because, you know, I'm contractually <laughs> obligated. I'm contractually obligated to mention yeah. Quentin Tarantino every every time. And that, yeah, I know. I, I, I know Tarantino ripped that off from Psycho. You think I don't know that? They're, these are two of my favorite movies. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, and if anyone, speaking of ripped if off, out when... There, uh, you remember Cool Hand Luke that come close to 1970? Yeah. Well, the director of it liked the look of this cop right here, the look of his look of him so much that uh, he took that look of the man with no eyes and gave it to the actor that played that. You know. Right. Yeah. Who was that? Uh. Oh, cool hand Luke. Uh, oh. the, the guy in the mirror sunglasses. Yeah. 
Yeah, I can't remember his name, though. Somebody, hey, anybody out there in podcast yeah. land, call in call in now and tell us the but name of the yeah, actor. I mean, this guy <laughs> is one of the creepiest cops in the whole movie. In yeah. mo- movie history. I mean, even if you weren't rooting for her, there's still money. Just that guy right there, you know. <laughs> if a guy, if yeah. a cop pulled over you like that, you'd be like, uh, you'd be thinking about all the shit that you've done in the past. The the shot where she looks up through the window and and the camera is looking from her point of view, that looks yeah. like something out of the Twilight Zone, like that. It's it's got that same type of like framing and the way yeah, that the Yeah, well remember this the was a TV crew so they were used to filming in a TV right. aperture. So mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Hmm. I mean but yeah. Yeah. But it does like uh, for for some reason his whole character, all the shots of him from her point of view, really feel like they really have a Twilight Zone feel to me. Um, And, you know, I don't believe that that was intentional per se, but it does add another air of mystery to this whole movie because even though he follows her uh, in the next scene where she trades in the car, we never see him. we, We never see him again. Yeah. Even as the crime well, is even yeah. as the crime is investigated by private detectives and um you know her family, we never see that cop again. But he does make kind of a big well, deal of following her around for the next yeah, like because ten minutes. He's making sure that she makes it to town all right. I mean he's really supposed to be if you look at his dialogue as written, he's supposed to be a real innocent cop who's basically thought that she was broken down on the highway. Right. Well, he does initially approach her as though he's attempting to make sure she's okay, but I I always thought that her she, like suspicious reaction yeah. uh ca- causes him to change his mind about her overall, but I guess I can see it from from what you're saying that yeah, maybe he's just following her to make sure she gets into town safe, but he yeah. does ask the used car but salesman. she's got the, that in... guilt, but she stinks of guilt. Well, he yeah. do, I don't know if he asked the carman, used car salesman. Oh, yeah, That's no. all in her head. Yeah, well, when no, after she buys the car and she drives away, the police officer talks to the car salesman and says, oh, first time I've ever seen a customer high pressure the salesman. Uh so I, I mean, I don't know. You're right. That might just be all in her imagination, but it it definitely happens. But I love because we're um, still playing with uh, her. She is our point of view. We're all behind her because we're all seeing this from her perspective. We're used to that kind of storytelling in film where the person that we see and by now we get comfortable with and we uh, 
as they say, you know, the, that filmmaking technique, you know. Well, yeah, I know what you're saying. You you uh, you identify with a character. Yeah, and, who is our uh, sympathetic yeah. character that we're following through the movie? But you know, we're we're looking at at this movie um, uh, through a different lens. Obviously, I mean, you and I are both, you know, uh, you know hitting our fifties. So we've been around for a long time, but we're, we're so familiar with filmmaking techniques. Now, you know, I was talking to uh, Sean Timms, our good friend over there at uh, our massive who, who gave us our start as writers. Uh, You know, we're, we're uh, I was talking to him the other day and uh, I've been watching that new show dope sick on Hulu about the opioid crisis in America and uh, I was, I pointed out to Abby, I said, see, uh, this girl here, she's going to end up being addicted to Oxycontin because her bedposts look like uh, pawns in a chess game. And uh, Abby was like, you're probably right. And I was, it ended up, they actually said two episodes later, I was a pawn in their game. I was talking to Sean Timms about it. And he was oh. like, you watch movies. He was like, he was like, he was like, you watch, he was like, you watch movies in a, in TV in a weird way. And I was like, I guess, yeah, you but, know, I'm like, no, there's nothing against lazy script writing, you know, putting something right? that obvious in there. But well, I'm trying, I'm, I'm looking not... <laughs> at this through the 1960s view where, you know, nothing. This movie is so unique. I mean, you, the audience is already discombobulated because we've seen a virginal hero fuck, enjoy sex, lounge around in her bra, steal money, but we're still rooting for her happiness. Well, yeah, that's what I'm saying is that I've, I've, uh, you know, um, uh, yeah, uh, I'm saying. I've seen, you and I have seen so many movies that all of this stuff seems obvious to us now, but, you know, uh, you know, there's, there's lots of subtleties to this movie that, pe- that audiences back then didn't really catch on to. Well, not the first time around, but right. if they were watching this, that's why Hitchcock wanted people to only come in from the first. Because right. if you watch this after seeing what happens later, you're going to be more looking at this point than, you know. He was okay, trying are you to ready? Be, <laughs> I'm at where she's in the toilet. Uh, counting right. out the money. And that's the first cut scene that I can remember because every print that I've seen before cuts from uh, her, the guy asking the money to uh, her coming out of the bathroom with the money and handing it to him. All right. I don't remember that. (laughs) My (laughs) Blu-ray... Oh, Jesus. My Blu-ray cut out again and... Then I was trying to fix it, and I realized I had the wrong remote in my hand. Yeah. <laughs> Friggin' A, man. 
Oh, we got too many remotes <laughs> nowadays, man. Yeah, like, yeah, especially like at our house, because we have TVs, kitchen, in the bedroom, in the office, in the living room, in the den. We have a TV in every friggin' room. We have DVD players. We have yeah. VHS players. You know, we have record players that, like, actual vinyl record players that you can do, you know, use a remote, like, and it's just everywhere in the house there's a remote control, and you, I never know what device it goes to. You Jesus could, Christ, I'm pretty I sure. I mean, really, you could see that cop right there as her conscience riding down mm-hmm. on her. But that, like I said, is watching it from the second time, not the first, like you said. And as gorgeous right. as this film is, how hard is it really to tell that this was shot for a very low budget and as quick as it was? Yeah, but and, and you know, that's one of the things I really love about it is, um, I mean, I'm a big fan of black and white cinema anyway, but I think that has some something to do with like my own like ADD ADHD like I like I like the I like the black and white it's a big reason why I like Quentin Tarantino and Wes Anderson like we were talking about earlier because of the symmetry and the colors that are in those films uh but it's a big big reason why I like black and white movies is because they you know even in asymmetrical shots or like uh, Dutch angles or whatever, you can still really define, uh, you know, define the perimeters of the shot. And like, I love this rear projection stuff that they do uh, in black and white films. And uh, again, I, I, I mentioned earlier that, you know, Kubrick and, and Hitchcock shared some parallels, uh, you know, in, uh, eyes wide shut Kubrick did use the uh the Dutch angles and the rear projection um not to as as you know not to a, an effect that Hitchcock did but he used it you know he tried it you know so I mean yeah, see? and plus he didn't sell it in the trailer which to me is the greatest fucking movie trailer of all time as a horror film because if he would have sold this as a horror film it would have been marketed for the kiddie audience and the kiddie matinees and even in 1960 you don't want your kids to be watching this (laughs) right yeah no I I agree with you 100% I do think the psycho trailer is one of the uh, it's definitely the greatest trailer of all time yeah um and and uh people who've never seen it I mean you can probably seek it out on YouTube but if you have either version of psycho uh Stephen and I each have a different uh well it's not a different version of the film it's just released on different uh labels but yeah, if you if you get any collector's version of Psycho nowadays, you'll get the trailer, and it's it's not your typical thirty minute or thirty second movie trailer. It's like ten minutes where Hitchcock takes you around and shows you around the the Bates Motel and the house and everything, and kind of 
And we Tele- are now telegraphed a little bit of the story. Yeah. Twenty minutes into the movie. And the movie is just now getting its main plot started. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> well, that's, that's arguable. Thing I the mean, studio didn't like is that there was a movie before the movie started. Yeah. Well, I I think that's important though. I mean, if yeah. if Marion hadn't if Marion hadn't stolen the money from her boss, then they're really then she could have just driven to the Bates Motel and the rest of the events of the film could have occurred just her on her way to meet her boyfriend. She doesn't, he doesn't know that she's coming. He doesn't know that she stole the money. If she hadn't stole the money, but she was just like, Oh, I'm going to put $20 worth of gas in my car, which is a lot of money for 1960 probably would have filled the tank twice and then I'm going to drive out there and meet up with my boyfriend. Okay, you know, but the fact that she stole the money is what leads us to, um, you know, her being pursued by not only the private eye, but her, her family, guilt. you know. Yeah, so, so it, it uh, you know, yeah, I, I, I understand, I guess, from a studio point of view in 1960 where audiences were – weren't always patient. I mean, not that they are nowadays either. If there's not a fucking fight scene in the first five minutes of a Marvel movie, then people are pissed off. But, you know. Yeah. <clears throat> but Hitchcock I mean, really, right now we're introduced to our real main character right now, and it's like 20 minutes, like I said, 20 minutes in the movie, and Norman Bates himself is just now getting. But what's funny is the way that uh, Blotch described Dean in the book was a fat, stinky nerd guy, which Dean wasn't. Mm-hmm. If you really want nope. to look at how Dean would look, he would look more like Anthony Perkins. Mm-hmm. This was really Anthony's first real big lead in a movie. Yeah, wasn't uh I don't recall 100% uh with my movie trivia, but again, I am uh whiskey drunk. Uh, he I've was, smoked some, uh, smoked the some weed, ate lead some mushrooms, but Slender yeah. in the Grass <clears throat> and Fear Strikes Out the baseball movie before this. Huh. But didn't uh, wasn't he a soap wasn't he in a soap opera? No, I, for some reason I Blender in the for grass some reason I soap opera type movie, yeah, yeah, about yeah. him uh, yeah. falling uh, in love with his father's younger wife. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. But uh, for some reason, I always thought that he was in a soap opera back before yeah. he did. And Psycho. the clothing was right. Anthony Perkins' idea. The yeah. oversized, badly fitting, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it works, but um, there are some things about this movie uh, when it comes to stuff like that that I'll talk about when they come along. But uh, 
as much as I do like the black and white and the really and and the and the really nice like definition and framing, uh, there are a couple of special effects in this movie that really annoy me. And I think Hitchcock later perfected them in uh, Vertigo uh, and uh, Rear Window, but yeah, some of the stuff that he tries. Some of the stuff that he tries in this movie, it doesn't really set with me as well. Although this is still my favorite Hitchcock movie by far. Uh, and it's one of my favorite movies of all time, actually. Um, and I say that, you know, a lot of times people ask you, what, what's your favorite horror movie or what's your favorite action movie or what's the, uh, I, I don't, I don't differentiate like that. Like I have a list of favorite movies and the genre is irrelevant. You know what I mean? I just, these are yeah. my favorite movies, you know, you know, and it doesn't matter. Like, I guess if you ask me like, what's my favorite horror movie, I guess I would say George Romero's Dawn of the Dead. Okay. I guess that would be my favorite horror movie. But now it's interesting that you brought this up earlier I don't really consider Psycho to be a horror movie. I would consider it more to be a thriller, I guess, like a psych, like psychological thriller, maybe. I yeah, mean, but this created the genre of psychological thriller. There were two movies that came out in this time period, both shocking, and both really changed that. And one was this, which was a big hit and really changed how we really watched movies. Yeah. And that. And, and, and then I'm, the I'm second assuming, one was Peeping Tom. I was going to say. Guy's assuming, career. Yeah. yeah, I was going to say, I assume the other movie you're thinking of is Peeping Tom. Yeah. Uh, which is... Uh, I mean, Peeping Tom is an amazing movie. I don't understand why, why that was so dating. And you're right, yeah, like destroyed his career. Like, and I well, don't. And I mean, Peeping Tom indicts the audience for watching the movie as much as, yeah. Well, I mean that you know, it's it's. Uh, in the ingrained in the very uh you know the essence of psycho is voyeurism i mean norman is a voyeur you know and 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 that's a very similar theme in peeping tom you know it's it's, it's about voyeurism it really isn't brought up because you never hear her full name much marion but what's her last name Rain. <laughs> right. And what's Norman obsessed with? His birds. His birds, yeah. Yep. Yeah, I was gonna bring that up. We're we're coming to that scene right now where he brings her the sandwich. Uh that's at least that's where I'm at. Like I said, my yeah. blue ray is frozen he, up yeah. a couple times. It's right here. He's coming to, where he's, he's coming uh, down the sam- Yeah. He's talking. Yeah, he's coming to down her. the steps with the sandwich right now. I mean yeah. with this scene. Hitchcock is playing with you because in a way he's like, you're thinking to yourself, Marion would have had a better life if she ended up with this guy rather than the Mr. Smooth Talker who has his bills to pay. (laughs) 
Uh, I just wanted uh, just wanted to know if you wanted to lick some stamps. Oh no, wait, that's not. <laughs> oh no, uh, no, I got a sandwich and some milk. <laughs> uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, it is weird that this film has. Uh, well, it's not that Peeping Tom hasn't endured, but it had to find an audience. Whereas Psycho, I think you know, wasn't the biggest hit right out of the box, but it. Oh, yes, uh, it was. Yeah, yeah. It was a big hit from the start. Do you think that's because of the whole uh, kind of... uh, Now, this wasn't like a William Castle-type stunt. Like, you know, William Castle always had the, oh, you know, the wacky stunts for his movies but when Hitchcock said you can't come in you have to watch the movie from beginning to end and please don't tell anybody the ending do you think people initially read that as like a William Castle type stunt and they thought they were gonna yeah until they seen the movie and then they were like oh okay I understand (laughs) yeah oh now I get it yeah right yeah this is basically Hitchcock sitting in the back of the theater, knowing what's going to come up, and just waiting for <laughs> the the shoe to drop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you say uh, this scene right here. We're talking about obviously it foreshadows uh, Norman's interest in taxidermy, um, but not only does it show the bird he even says to marion you eat like you a bird. eat like a bird yeah right yeah and he's got all the all the birds and um i don't know i, I i've had this discussion with another so friend of mine good little jokes and stuff that you don't get until the second time you watch it right I talked to a friend of mine about this one one time, uh, another fellow film fanatic and I were talking and he said, and he brought this up and I had never thought of this. And I've read a lot of books and articles about Psycho. I had never thought of this and I don't think I'd ever read this anywhere. He said, in the 1960s, bird was a slang term for an attractive woman. Yeah. Which I never. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I never thought about that, but it it might, you know, especially, uh, you know, Hitchcock was from England, England, right? Like the U, the yeah. So that that could have been like intentional as well. I don't know. I've never read it anywhere else. That intentional, but yeah. But yeah, it does. It it tracks though. You know, it tracks. Yeah. But yeah. But. It really was daring to make a horror-type film for adults back when horror was the kiddie genre. If you've ever yeah, seen like, uh, uh, Hammer's Rasputin, the Mad Monk, that's not a kiddie film. But when it come over there, kids, come and see this and get your Rasputin beard. <laughs> Brown for girls and pink, you know, brown for boys, pink for girls. 
Yeah, well, it, it kind of goes back to what I was uh, joking about before or talking about before, but um, like the William Castle movies um, were quote unquote horror films, but like uh, Joe Dante um, uh, brilliantly uh, parodies that in um, the movie, uh, John Goodman. Uh, uh, Matinee. Matinee, yes. Thank you. Um, yeah, I've eaten way too many mushrooms today, man. But oh, don't I'm on worry it. about it. <laughs> yeah, you're on it. <laughs> I'm on it. Yeah, but, I can uh, speak Nate, so don't worry. No, yeah, I know. Yeah, but I know. <laughs> we make a good team. We make a good team because I'm always drunk and high, and you're always sober, and and we both know a lot about movies and TV and music. So somewhere in the yeah. middle, we can make this happen every week. <laughs> uh, but yeah, but yeah, uh, I mean, you know, this uh, whole theme is so calm and relaxing. In most films, this would be the meet romantic scene, you know. Right, but and like you said, make uh, sure it, not to have that shot where both of them are in the scene looking at each other together at the same time. He creates like an invisible wall between them. Yes, and then when the camera pans up to the window and shows the house, you're right. He's never put them in the same shot like they're looking at one another romantically in any way. Yeah. And then when the... When the camera pans over, uh, you know, it, 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 the house is in between. See, look at look at his face. You mean an institution, a madhouse? He's what? Where he where she says, you know, put her somewhere like an old folks home, and he's like, you mean an institution, a madhouse? Right. The second time you're like, oh shit, she just signed her ass. She just signed her fate right there. <laughs> yep. You notice he doesn't kill anyone he finds attractive. He kills anyone he sees as a threat to his world. Right. I mean, look at the look on his face right there. He goes from sweet, loving Norman to this, I'm going to kill you, bitch. Look on his face (laughs) so subtly. Yeah. Uh Uh-oh. 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 Ellie wants to to be on the podcast. Come on, Ellie. Come on, girlie. She wants attention. She wants it now. (laughs) Attention, please. It not only does the look on his face change, but you see he slams the door when he goes back to the house. Like, yeah, he, how do you like that? He pissed. just goes yeah. a little mad sometimes. Yeah, we all go a little mad sometimes. Sometimes we all go a little mad. People forget <laughs> that it's Janet Lee who says that line, not... Anthony. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's not Norman. She's the one who says it. But they, I've noticed a lot of times with like modern art, like t-shirts and, you know, 
stickers and stuff that people use to reference pop culture nowadays, they, whenever they do put that quote on anything, it's always uh, Anthony Perkins, Norman Bates, and it says, we all go a little mad sometimes, but you're right. Uh, yeah, Janet Lee is the one that says it. Yeah. Well, and now like we're that, coming up to the most. To me, it's is, like that one is, scene in the Manson family. You've seen it, Jim Bever's the Manson family. Yep. Where he runs into the guy who has that shirt that says, Charlie don't serve, and end up just kicking <laughs> the shit out of him. I'm like, you don't know how many times I wanted to do that to people who misquote movies or misquote, <laughs> you know. All right, this is the most controversial scene in the whole movie. They showed a toilet. <laughs> and him peeping on her. I mean, that's the one thing that took me out of the remake is they is they hinted here, but in the remake they actually show Vince Vaughn bopping. bopping yeah, I was you know bopping it. I I. I was going to mention that as well. Um, yeah. I don't, for, uh, first of all, I don't even know why Gus Van Zandt or anyone would want to do a remake of Psycho. And if you are going to do a remake, like a shot for shot remake is kind of ridiculous in and of itself. I mean, of course, we've seen hundreds of reboots and remakes over the years, everything from yeah. Friday the 13th to Star Trek to whatever. I don't give a shit if you want to remake or reboot or make an unsolicited sequel that no one really wanted. But, you know, if you're going to do a shot-for-shot remake, don't change the one shot from an innocent peeping that's suggestively sexual to... Well, no, but like you said, it's suggested that Norman is, you know, horny, but it's not... (laughs) You know, like it's it's the Gus Van Zandt remake. You're right. Vince Vaughn actually masturbates. You know, it's like I don't I didn't need to see that. So here's what we were talking about earlier. This is why uh, for anyone listening who doesn't know, this is why Hitchcock instated the rule that you had to show up when the movie began and when uh, and and not tell anyone what you saw when the movie ended because uh, up until this point, you could, you could walk into a movie at any time, pay your, pay your quarter, pay your quarter, your nickel or whatever, watch the whole movie as many times as you wanted. But because Janet Lee was the top rated uh, actress with, on the bill, uh, Hitchcock was afraid that people would show up halfway through the movie and there would be no Janet Lee left. So they'd be like, what the fuck? You know? Yeah. So that's why he instated that rule of you have to show up at the beginning and well, you can stay Well, you enjoy all the twists in this movie a hell of a lot more. Oh, this sound right here was considered shocking. The studio are like, Alfred, you can't show a flushing toilet. Uh, why? Yeah, <laughs> yeah there was something and about toilet. And in case toilet. you're wondering, for the first two times that she filmed this, 
she had falsies on. But the water kept taking the glue off, so she said, ah, fuck it. Right. Because imagine <laughs> you're filming this and the falsies fall off. They had to stop the film for 20 minutes to glue the motherfuckers back on for them to fall off again. Now, this is one of the more controversial stories about the history of Psycho, and I'm not sure that I believe it, but it's been written multiple times that Hitchcock himself did not direct the most famous scene in this film, that he just... Oh, horseshit. Yeah, exactly. I I don't. Here's one thing I love about it that you really won't notice unless you stop and pop frame. Is that you see the blood, you see the screams, you see her do this, but you never see the knife penetrate her body once. No, actually, I I I uh um when I was in college, uh, you know. a lot of people who listen to our podcast or who know me, they know I majored in English and I minored in philosophy. And for uh, one of my papers, I tried to combine the two. And I did a I did a survey asking people to come watch Psycho. We had a movie theater uh, on our on campus, and I asked people to come watch Psycho and afterwards I had them take a survey and that was one of the questions on there is how many times was Marion stabbed in the shower and I I had boxes you know like 5, 10, 15, 20 and you know and then I said how many of those uh, cuts did you on screen and I had the same thing like 0, 5, 10, 15, 20 a bunch of people uh, clocked in at like 30 like oh I saw 30 stab wounds go right into her skin and I was like nope (laughs) there's not a single stab that you see on screen does not happen I actually seen this TV show once it had a uh, what's his name Uh, Anthony Perkins hosted and they showed this scene two times. And it's the only time right. I've seen it done this way. Guess what was so special about the first time they showed it? Toilet flushing. No, they <laughs> didn't cut out. They cut out the music. They cut yeah. out the music. Without the music, this scene had no... Doesn't have the visceral impact. Without the music, right. you just see, you know, the knife going against her. She's stabbing her, dying. You're right. like, oh, God, she gets killed. With the music, she gets gutted like a fucking pig. Right. You know, the Beastie Boys uh, sampled that sound that uh that music for uh their song i believe it was high plains drifter on their song yeah. on their album paul's boutique uh, it, yeah i think it was high plains drifter that at the very end they sample that <laughs> 
Alfred Hitchcock himself said that that music scene there was the exclamation point. I mean, it's classic. It's, uh, you know, like, even people who have never seen this movie, if you, like, you know, walk in on them in the bathroom and go, they know what you're talking about. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. All right, keep talking for a minute. I have to get up and let my cat out of the uh, studio because she's freaking out. I think it's because the door's closed. I'll be back in just a second. Okay. And the best, two best parodies of this scene is one, the uh, scene in High Anxiety where... It has Mel Brooks get stabbed by this guy with a paper because he's high anxiety is not a good movie, but that scene where he gets like stabbed with the paper and it shows him with a tiny paper cut and the blood flowing down like that. And the guy's like, here's your fucking paper. Here's your fucking paper is hilarious. And we're waiting for him to get back. But right now, you're rooting for Norman. You're like, oh, God, clean this shit up, Norman. Come on. I know you're like that fucking mother of his. That bitch is crazy. The cat has killed Nate. He is officially dead right now, and the cat is dragging his body out. We have evidence of the cat killing him. That it was all a setup. Him cleaning it up. That's the only really gore you see in that scene is the blood flowing down there and that's on the tub. See, that's the cat pulling out the hat. You hear that sound in the background? All right, I'm back. I'm back. <laughs> and can you guess what I consider the most best parody of this scene is? No. Phantom of the fucking paradise. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, where Garrett Graham's in the shower then all of a sudden, you you see the knife come through there. And you're like, oh, my God, he's going to stab in psycho style. And then the plunger to the mouth. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, shoot. Yeah, I had, to, I had to walk all the way through the house to satisfy the cat. That was a fun adventure right there. So... Uh, so <laughs> So wait till you uh, listen to it. I made up a whole three-minute story about the, how the cat killed you, and he was exposing your body just like there in the movie. It had to shut up right now. But yeah, it's me in funny the how right now you're rooting for fucking Norman, and you don't realize yeah. it until the second time. You're rooting for the fucking killer to fucking be able to hide the body. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, and that's how one of the not things I've always. The money is in this scene after she puts it back in the uh, the suitcase. There, the money is not important anymore. Yeah. To her, the money is everything. He doesn't even bother with the money. That's the reason why the detective suspects Norman. He suspects he killed her for the money. Yeah, but he's so distracted by disposing of the body that he's not even aware of the money. But it's it's like what you said. It, well, see, now, this, this this is what you were saying earlier. You were talking about how... Um, you don't really root for Marion at the beginning of the movie. I don't believe that's true. I think at the beginning of the movie, you see her boss is an asshole. You see the guy who's dropping off the money is kind of a scumbag. So when she steals the money to go be with her lover, you're like, all right, you're rooting for her. But then when she gets here and encounters Norman and is murdered, uh, I I think initially you do you know like like we were talking about in the earlier scene where they're never in a single shot together they're they're talking back and forth uh and they're obviously both isolated individuals when it pans over to the window you see the house where Norman's mom lives you know uh mother oh look NFB those are my initials <laughs> <laughs> I love the way he looked at, at the shoes. If you're thinking of, if you're looking at it the second time, knowing that he's a cross-dresser, the first thing that when he sees the shoes, you're like, oh, he has a foot fetish. But then you realize, <laughs> he's like thinking, oh, will those shoes fit me? So are you at that? Are, are, is this where you're at in the movie? I know mine's frozen up a couple times. Are you at the point where he's putting the car in the swamp? Yeah, it's right before that. It's right when he's getting all of her shit together, and he just grabbed yeah. the paper with the money and just did that. I think even if he knew the money was in there, he wouldn't care. Yeah, no, it's, yeah, it's, it, you're right. If it's not about, about the, the money, money he would have a connection in uh, eating Raul where he would like, oh, mother's killed someone else. Hey, Joe, we got us a good car right here. You know? <laughs> right, right, yeah. No, I'm, I, I might have gotten a little bit ahead of you when my, the last time my Blu-ray froze up, but. I'm the right at the part where the where he puts the car in the swamp, and that's I what know. I was How talking. great is that? Because when the car goes in there, and you're like, and it doesn't go all the way in, you're like, oh shit, oh shit, come on! And then the second they realize, well, hey, what the fuck was I well, rooting yeah. for? <laughs> exactly, yeah, that's what I was getting at when I said that. I was like, you know, at yeah. the beginning. Well, you you said that you're not rooting for Marion in the beginning. I am personally. Her story well, tracks with me. I I, I'm, I, I feel I, sorry I'm excited for, her for her because if you really read between the lines with her John, the John Gavin character, 
He's just another yeah. one of the scumbag men in our life. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, that's, that's again, debatable. He seems kind of like a nice guy, but I, 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 I don't know. Hitchcock was kind of a famous misogynist anyway. So the way that he like plays with well, female. Well, if you ask what Janet Lee, he says all the misogynist yeah. stories is bullshit and that uh, Tippi Hendren's a fucking liar. Everyone who's worked right. on Hitchcock's set, everyone, including people who didn't like Hitchcock and the way he treated actors, has said that Tippi Hedren's full of shit. With a batting average like that, it's pretty good to say. I'm just saying. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, Hitchcock yeah. was a son of a bitch toward his actors, but Tippi Hedren was full of shit. <laughs> bloop uh, I always did love that little bloop Bloop <laughs> Did you see my initials on the license plate? NFB Yeah <laughs> Sam Loomis's You didn't You, you never knew You never knew Uh I don't think I ever told you. Yeah, my initials are NFB. My middle name is Frazier. Did you ever know that? NFB. No, I always thought it was fucking. <laughs> What's your middle name? Michael, Miguel. It was, I'm supposed to be Miguel. Michael Stephen, but the nurse screwed it up and reversed it on the birth certificate. My parents went half fuck it. I like Stephen better. <laughs> that that sounds like uh like a plot point in a in like a modern horror movie like you know are you Michael or Steven? You know, like like there was one of each, like you know. Yeah. I, I, I can I, I can see it, you know. Uh, uh, it's 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 the birthday. Like like you were born a twin, one of you was Michael and the other one was yeah. Steven. <laughs> well, that's already a Michael song. Like I said, I love it because now the real movie is kicking in the gear. And isn't yeah. it funny that he gets stabbed in the face, and the first thing you see of the private eye is facial close ups? That's the kind of visual pun. Yeah, Here's um, when his uh, TV crew takes over, because the detective, T, is in two or three episodes of the series. The guy who plays uh, uh, Loomis, Loomis is, yep. is in the TV show, and the girl, she's in the TV show. Yep. Oh, and what character in what movie, which we might be doing in a couple, we might be doing as our Halloween special, was inspired by the name of the detective, the full name of the detective in Psycho. Oh, Sam Loomis? What movie? Yeah. I don't know, man. The mushrooms just keep kicking in more and more. Hello, 
Halloween, <laughs> remember? What's the full name for oh, Donald yes. Pleasant's character? Yeah, Dr. Dan- Sam Donald Loomis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I should have known that. Yeah. I did know that. I like I said, I'm that, just the influence of this movie cannot be stated. I mean, every you mentioned William Castle. Pretty much he did like four or five Psycho films after Psycho came out. There was Homicidal, Straight Jacket, uh, Berserk. Who who directed? Uh, 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 oh, Sam Sam Fuller directed Shock Corridor, right? That was yeah. That was that was Sam Fuller. Um, that seems to have a psycho feel to it. Um, well, it takes place on the psycho ward. Yeah, right. And, and but, here's another you know, funny little joke. What's uh, Anthony Perkins eating in that scene? And it was a joke brought, that was devised by him and Hitchcock. <laughs> I don't know. what <laughs> Candy corn. He's pecking at candy corn like his birds. Oh, yeah, I, I always knew he was eating candy, but I could never tell what he was actually eating. Yeah, candy always, corn, that was a joke, you know. Yeah, I could, yeah, bird I could reference. tell he was eating Right, yeah. Arbogast. Hmm. I think I, I, I think I mentioned to you earlier. I've been watching that. There's the cat uh, again. <clears throat> yeah, here she comes. <clears throat> oh yeah, I know. I was gonna say. So <clears throat> I still say she wants to our, kill you. She's trying to the, lead you into the, a death trap. The way our house is set up is Abby and I have a studio office area all the way at the front of the house. So Mm -hmm. it's like, we're back to, we're back to back. Uh, I have my space over here where I do my music and my writing and my podcasts. And she has her area over there where she pays all of our bills and does her painting and her studying because she's the responsible one and I'm the fuck off. But then you have to walk out of the office into the living room. Then you have to walk down a really long hall to the kitchen on the left and the bedrooms on the right. And then the bathroom is all the way down there at the end of the hall. And the cat just wants some treats. So she starts freaking out. And I'm like, I have to walk half a mile to dump some treats into her treat dish so I can come back and finish the podcast. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm just like, what the fuck? See, he's so, eating the candy at- corn like a bird. See, look, he even looks like a bird in that shot with his beak, you know. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. Even the even like the weird way that he's chewing, like it's not like he's chewing with his side, like if if I put a piece of candy corn in my mouth, 
I chew on the side, but he kind of, like he's rubbing his like his teeth back and forth. He's not like just chewing up and down. You know, he's kind of like yeah, like kind of like you said, like a like bird style. He's choking it down like a duck. You know, like the way a duck eats. You know. Yeah. Mm. Really, Anthony Perkins should don't get the credit for the amount of research and work he put into the role. Right. He even looked up Ed Gein as a person. You know, he even read the Judge Gulliger book that was out, which is, if you're looking for the best book on Ed Gein, look up that book. I think... You can still get a second or third or fourth printing of it cheap. Yeah, I have a uh oh, I have a really good uh Ed Gein book. Um uh it sucks. I we talk about this all the time, but my wife and I moved from a four bedroom house into yeah. a two bedroom apartment. <laughs> so a lot of our stuff is in storage right now and uh don't don't be worried, fans. This was not a financial issue. We just had to move quick because we both got new jobs in a new city. So uh, we're 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 still financially stable. Thank you for your concern. But uh, but yeah, it just sucks because so much of my stuff is in storage now. Like so many of my toys and movies and uh, yeah, records and books. I can't always access my stuff but i i have a really good ed gein book but i can't remember what it's called um uh, the, but yeah so uh, i forget what the judge Goliger book is called but it basically has all the trial transcripts uh police the police photos in it right yeah yeah uh, the book that i'm thinking of has a yeah, it has a lot of photos and it doesn't have any transcripts though, so we're not talking about the same book. It has a yeah. it has all of the crime it has all the crime photos, but it's it doesn't have any transcripts. But it's, it's just funny written. that yeah. most people think that Ed Gein was an extreme serial killer when really he he only really killed maybe three people. Yeah, the I rest think of I, the I'm, bodies and stuff I, was just full that he dug up from the graveyard. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that he only ever actually killed two people. All of the other remains that they found at his uh, homestead were bodies that he had exhumed from the local graveyards. I, 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 I believe he only ever killed two people. Or at least, I mean, I don't know, at least... Yeah, found freshly killed bodies and dragged them back to his house. But I'm going to assume that the two fresh bodies that they found at his house were people that he had actually killed. Because I, I think he, I think he went on like a two day killing spree, which ultimately ended in well, him being arrested. So yeah, so. that's what busted him. It was during hunting season. Remember, that's one thing that was more in deranged if you get the director's cut. Then there is that he didn't see them as people; he seen them as deer. Yeah, well, one of his victims was found hanging in his garage, sliced up like a deer. <laughs> yeah, so, well, that you know, he knew how uh, to. It was dressed. Yeah, 
Cause yeah, dressed that's like how a he deer. Did it. Yeah. But yeah, deranged is definitely the best uh, version of the Ed Gein story. Um, the, uh, yeah, Robert Block will uh, admit that he took inspiration from Ed Gein for Psycho, but uh, I, I think this is kind of funny, but. Uh, Toby Hooper will swear up and down that he never heard of Ed Gein before he wrote and directed Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and I just don't believe that. I mean, it's so similar. I mean, there's so many parallels. I don't believe that Toby Hooper never heard of <laughs> Ed Gein. Well, yeah, I believe it because the way he says it is that he did until he was trying to write a script for a horror film. He never heard of Ed Gein. His is a cross between Ed Gein and the Texarkana killer. Oh, uh, the, um, uh, what's, what's that? Uh, I own the, the dreaded sundown. Te- yeah. Sundown. Yeah. Yeah. Um, see, I always thought that. Friday the 13th had more in common with the town that dreaded sundown. Only because they you both know. were uh, potato sack. <laughs> You're a fucking potato sack. How about that? <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I I don't know. But what like what 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 about what about the town that dreaded sundown though? The t- Texarkana killer, he didn't really he wasn't like a cannibal. He didn't wear human skin, right? Like, yeah, but he killed a lot of people around the Texas uh, OU border, where which is yeah. the area wow. that uh, let that the uh, Leatherface's the cannibal family in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre right. had their thing. The thing they did the thing with the what? The, yeah, the they did their the they did their thing with killing <laughs> yeah. people. Yeah, right. But I, I'm just saying, it seems you know like there's a lot. It it just seems to me like you know the cannibalism what, like, act, the cannibalism angle is just good spice. Like it was never proven that Edward Gein did can, was a cannibal. I mean, he did make belts and stuff. And he wore a skin suit to keep his mother alive. But there never was really any proof that he was a cannibal. Technically, he was a necrophile. Yeah, I I, I agree with that. Um, and like I said, I've I, I've read a lot of about Ed Gein, and I've seen a lot of movies and documentaries about him. And I, I believe that as well. You know, I mean, when you talk about someone like Jeffrey Dahmer and they go into his house and they find, you know, skulls boiling in the, you know, on the stove or, you know, yeah, you can say, oh, maybe he was just boiling the skin off so he could keep the skull. Well, but, he confessed yeah. to uh, being a cannibal. So he could keep yeah. them inside of him forever. So it wasn't yeah. cannibalism as food sustenance. It's just one of those he wanted to make sure that part of them was always with him. Yeah. That I, was his I, thing I, is I, he didn't want to be alone. Edward Gein's thing was that he 
missed his mother and wanted her to still be alive. Yeah, and that kind of brings us back around to Psycho, which we are still watching for anyone who's out there yeah. <laughs> listening. We are still watching Psycho. Um, yeah, and, and that's a, well, a big Norman, point. Well, Norman, we'll get into later to what his thing was. Yeah. The closest thing that he has that related to Ed Gein is the whole taxidermy thing. Right. And I, I think you're right. I don't believe that Ed Gein was a cannibal, but he did, I mean, he did take a lot of uh, dead bodies and, like you said, make belts and window shades and lampshades and yeah, things like that. Yeah, one of those were, yeah. he was always taught that once you made a kill or the respect the body or the deer's body, you didn't waste any of it. Yeah. Okay, here's one of the scenes that I was talking about earlier. Are you at the part where Arbogast is walking up the stairs? Mm-hmm. This is That's one of the, the most amazing I... fucking shots. Because I can't figure out how he did it. It has to be, again, it has to be like rear projection. It has to be rear projection like I was talking about before. Just in a... A, like a new and ambitious way. And here's um, the first time that we see Mother on screen. <laughs> you know, there's uh, <laughs> yeah. the fir- first time you see Mother. To us, Mother is a fucking killer, not... Norman is just another one yeah. for victims. Yeah, I've been working on uh, I, I I've been working on a, a new movie trailer today uh, for a, a, a movie that uh, that I'm going to make. Uh, so I was I was telling Abby about it earlier. You you want to hear my new my new movie pitch? Is it another is, one of those, is, like the 31 days of uh, Bradford, where uh, basically you <laughs> created the sods? Uh, or is that I, one one we, we don't talk about on the air? I'm sorry. <laughs> no. I, I, I was just joking around earlier today, and I was like, this is how you make a, a movie trailer for nowadays. We were talking about how great the... Uh, the trailer for Psycho is. This is how fucking lame movie trailers are now. You ready? Yeah. Cut, 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 cut. (laughs) (laughs) Don't forget, yeah, most of them have the the sound from, uh, what is it? Uh, Inception. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> from, from the disturbed mind of Christopher Nolan. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't even, I can't stand movie trailers anymore. It's like, you, yeah, you know, like, like I got we, over uh, maybe a, a week's 
you know, if you just watch them straight, the timing of them would last maybe a week straight with no sleep of movie trailers. <laughs> and they're all 60s, 70s, 80s. Not one. Yeah. Not a single trailer comp that has '90s trailers on it. <laughs> you have, and, and, and like modern trailers, don't forget you have to have a upbeat pop song that is sung in like halftime. You know, <laughs> it, it it has to be. Um, you know, there has to be. Name any pop song from the eighties, and you can just slow it down, put some of that Christopher Nolan into it, and then you know, or uh, throw it's uh, fight, 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 cut, 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 cut. <laughs> you know, yeah, All right, or action, yeah. action, 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 action. What was I, <laughs> uh, I was trying to think of the song that I was singing to Abby earlier today that I was like, see, I can put this in my trailer for the movie that I'm never going to make. <laughs> I can't think of it now, though, but it was a stupid 80s pop song. And I was just like, look, if I sing it slow like this and I do the Christopher Nolan. Mm, mm, well, don't forget the Man. very first trailer for the Modern Dune, which I'm probably going go to watch tonight. It was uh, Brain Damage by uh, Pete Floyd. Slow down. <laughs> right. Yeah. All yeah. the you know. Yeah. Some somebody's gonna but, use yeah, that. Yeah. Here, you know. these two characters are in maybe four or five. Uh, uh, episodes of uh, Alfred Hitchcock Presents As This House Is. Yeah. And this house is also in the Twilight Zone, the one with Billy Mummy, where it's like, you know, where he plays like the kid that can do anything with his mind. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah, uh, he wishes people into the cornfield. Yep. Yeah. So this... Yeah, that is... Like I said, yeah, that is the this film was thought like on the quick, you know, doom, boom, 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 boom. Yeah, we talked about this earlier, and I can't remember if we were talking about it before the show or uh, at the top of the show, but um, yeah, uh, Hitchcock definitely... He shot this on the fly, and he convinced the studio to let him do it for uh, what? I, how much did this movie cost? Like, I think it was like two hundred thousand at the time. Yeah, two hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, because he used his own crew and people that were already working with him on the on the show. So, yeah. like you said. A lot of these actors show up on uh, on Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and uh, but yeah, they were also uh, doing uh, Studio Ninety and uh, The Twilight Zone, and uh, just a lot of those shows back and, then. Uh, yeah, like I said, the first this crew was such a well-oiled machine by then that 
he could like lift his finger and they knew exactly what to do. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, there are some scenes Janet Lee said in her book where he would just yell out before a shot. Episode 33. And they would know exactly what shot he was talking about from the show. Yeah, and I think a lot, like a lot of these, uh, a lot of the these cast and crew members, you know, we have to uh, look at the fact that around the time that Psycho was released, this is when we were going from mostly live television to er- like the early days of, of uh, you know, uh, filmed television that would be shown later. So, so many of these crew members and actors and actresses were familiar with the, you know, go, go, go. It's live TV, you know, that, like you said, they became a well-oiled machine because they were working together under such intense conditions when you're talking about live television. And well, remember, not live television. It's just they were able to pump out those uh, 30-minute episodes, you know, just boom, 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 boom. The only ones who really weren't members of the Traveling Carnival of Alfred Hitchcock Presents are Janet Lee and Anthony Perkins. Yeah. Yeah. Hitchcock uh, was impressed about how quick they got into the groove. Yeah, I don't believe that. I know Janet Lee was never on an episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, but I think Anthony Perkins was on at least one episode. Yeah. I don't recall. Yeah. I don't think Janet Lee was ever on an episode of Alfred Hitchcock, but I'm pretty sure. Oh, and this mother. Yeah. Was in a couple of episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. So... Alfred knew her voice. But, yeah, I, I, I do think there's some merit in what I was saying before, is I think a lot of these people were able to work together really well because they did, like I said, And how do you love it. how uh, Alfred is keeping us out of the loop? You know, I mean, most filmmakers would go in and show us the punchline right now. He keeps it until basically you can hear slap, 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 slap on the reel. <laughs> right. <laughs> of the last reel hitting the film. Yep. So you you said you're going to go see Dune tonight? I, I It's HBO Max, man. Oh, oh, okay. I thought you meant you were going to go to the movie theater. I was like, it's 10 o'clock at night, man. You're going to no, go to the movie HBO theater No, it's HBO Max. Right yeah. I'm going to get off I here, make dinner, and basically watch Dune. After I do a spot check on the Blu-rays, of course, I'm real weird about right. that. Make sure that the disc yeah. works. Nope, I'm the same way, man. Like anytime I anytime I get a a, a new Blu-ray or DVD, even VHS tape in the mail, I always check it to make sure that it's going to work. 
The only two really aesthetic changes that Gus Van Zandt, he said, this is a shot-by-shot remake, but I'm making it in color. Mm. And then, well, that line just perfectly. He's like, you're making a shot-by-shot remake? And then the one on the screen said, no, you're not. And then I said, he shot it in color. <laughs> I'm like, goddamn, <laughs> beautiful fit. You know, really, once uh, you change something that major, you're not doing a shot-by-shot remake. Right? I actually, uh, I went to Universal Studios when I lived in uh, California, and I actually went and uh, saw the Bates Motel and the Bates House, but they're not, I don't know what they did they tore the, the fuck uh, down yeah the Bates but house I, doesn't saying, exist anymore and here's well, the stupid I, part Guillermo del Toro offered them quite a substantial amount to buy this house and have it moved someplace where they could just you know preserve it but Universal said no it wouldn't be worth the time and bother well, he's the one who's going to be spending the time and the bother, so what do they give a shit? Yeah. But, no, what I was going to say is, having been there in real life, the hotel, the Bates Motel and the house were not side-by-side side like they are in the movie. No, um, that was so a that, beautiful that was, shot. Like I said, yeah, that was TV a, yeah, where they're yeah. used to using plates like that. Yeah. And when I say plates, they shot the exterior of the hotel. And all they had to do is, like, put the glass plate of the hotel right there where of the Bates house. Yeah. That was cool. Like, I, you know, I know I I don't want to sound like an old fogey, but, you know, like... I love so much about old filmmaking techniques, you know, that I, I, I mean, I, you know, I was never one of those purists who back in the early days was like, ah, fuck digital, you know, fuck that shit. I, I, I've always appreciated. I mean, I, I still think like one of the earliest, like, you know, Jurassic Park, I think still looks great today. It's a stupid movie, but I think the visual yeah. effects are amazing. Yeah, the reason I went to see Jurassic know? Park in the theater is it was the first film to be shown in DTS sound. That's why I went to right? see it. I could give a fuck yeah. about the movie. I wanted to hear DTS stereo. That's the yeah, kind of movie right. nerd I am. And like, DTS, oh shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right and like you know it's like i don't mind like i i think there are a lot of digital effects that have aged poorly but you know i i don't i don't hate the of digital. course I mean, and you know i don't hate it but yeah it's like, it's like uh, you looking know at the like, gore effects and blood blood feast yeah. which came out this year too oh yeah that's another right way this year changed things Let's see, what come out this year? Uh, Psycho, Peeping Tom, Blood Feast. I say, God, you know. Yeah. Oh, you Blood couldn't. Feast, that's a good one. 
I mean, it was just the first pure splatter film, but after 1960, it was like it can't go home again. You know. Right? Yeah. It opened doors uh, that you couldn't close again. I mean, we haven't said it yet, but one of the most titter-inducing and taboo-busting things that was in the trailer is a toilet and a flushing toilet. No, I, I yeah, I know. I mentioned that earlier. We talked. It's well. Is that in the trailer? You mean? Yeah. Because we we talked yeah, about it in the movie. Yeah, that's one of the very last yeah. shots in there. In the in the he's trailer, a, yeah. Yeah, he's like, oh, there's the mm. toilet. And everybody's like, hee! Because for some reason, hitting <laughs> and peeing is a taboo thing. Right. <laughs> yeah, and it plays such an important plot point too, right here. It's like yeah, right. Norman yeah, cleaned find, up yeah. all evidence, but they find something except except for the one thing that didn't get flushed down the toilet. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. But I, I mean, and yeah, how would you? I guess. <laughs> I, as far as I understand from everything I've read and seen about this movie is the, the major, uh, problem that, that the censors had with it was showing the toilet flush. If they had, if she had just torn up the paper, thrown it in the toilet and, but, but you wouldn't even know that. Cause I guess they weren't even supposed to show toilets on screen yeah they weren't like i said defecation and urination was like taboo on films back then but but even showing the toilet itself like would have been i i I don't know how they could have played i don't know how they could have played that off because like you said the sound effect itself was offensive to some audiences so it's like what do you i you know what are you supposed to do you can't show the toilet you can't show the toilet flush you can't play the toilet flushing sound effect but you need to like you said major plot point there we need to be able to discern what's happening right yeah, i mean it's like uh all in the family it's like if you watch it nowadays which they really can't show that series again because yeah, no <laughs> you think they would allow a bigot Big a bigot is him, you know. Well, we, I mean, you know, we allowed a huge ignorant bigot to be president for four years. But <laughs> yeah, but you know what I mean as a TV star. Yeah, because yeah. we're in woke yeah. thing, <laughs> right? But it is funny to see how really morals have changed. Yeah. And the really look at the real taboo busting films back then like uh, Psycho and Blood Beast. It's like the reason that H. G. Lewis and uh Friedman made Blood Beast is because that they had done everything they could do in the nudie category without having the law right right exploitation john without having the law right up their butt and they were like what can we do that hasn't been done before 
that there aren't any laws in the books about gore. Yeah, and, you know, that's the same kind of interesting um, story that revolves around Psycho, the film that we're watching tonight, is that um, Hitchcock had had never really pushed that envelope. And, you know, he, you know, he said, well, what can I do that I haven't done before? And he, you know, he didn't go for straight gore, but he wanted he something that had never violent been. scenes ever with no violence in it. <laughs> and, and that's one of the real I mean, reasons he shot this in black and white. It wasn't no financial concerns. It's just that he wanted to have blood in the shower scene, but he was afraid if it was in color, they'd be too much bullshit. Yeah, well, now we go back to, oh my gosh, I might get, all right, I usually get 12 cents every time I say Quentin Tarantino's name, but I'm going to mention him a second time tonight, so I might get 24 cents for tonight's episode. Uh in Kill Bill, Volume 1, when they have the showdown at the House of Blue Leaves, uh, it cuts to black and white in the middle of the of the uh, the showdown. And if you, uh, you and I both know, because we both have copies of The Whole Bloody Affair, where you can see it in color, but the reason why they cut to black and white in uh, the American version was because the censors... Uh, you know, were objecting to the the blood spray and all that. And we've talked about this before, like how Taxi Driver, uh, Martin Scorsese just lightened the tone of the blood a little bit. And uh, Robert Rodriguez cut like a quick scene from uh, Planet Terror. Not even the scene, he just cut it, just did a quick cut so that the blood didn't spray as much. And he was able to cover that because he was doing the whole uh, grindhouse, like, oh, it's yeah. all scratchy and, you know. Uh, but, yeah. Um, but, yeah, you're right. Like, uh, because after Psycho, Hitchcock did go on to do not only some of his best best work, but, uh, like, um, Rear Window and... Um, Rope uh, and, uh, Vertigo. Yeah, Rear Window and Vertigo were really, like, like vibrant. The, the colors were really vibrant. and uh, But, again, they didn't have blood in them. So, you know, so you're right. Like, uh, what was the movie that he really wanted to make that was about the, uh, the serial killer? Um he uh, he had a movie that he really wanted to make that was about a serial killer, but um, I forget. Again, it was too... Yeah, I do as well, but oh, I haven't. Yeah, I think he tried to get a movie about Edward Fish. No, but, but... didn't he? Didn't he? Uh, what? Uh, what was that? Uh, Frantic with uh with uh with Frenzy Harrison Ford Frenzy Frantic, yes. yeah that Frenzy. that was the movie that and didn't didn't was that am I thinking of the right thing was that the movie that Harrison Ford eventually did or was that Frantic 
I think Harrison Ford uh, did print it. Oh, yeah. no, no, no. Phone Booth, written by Larry Cohen and ended up directed by Joe Schumacher. Yeah, I no, I that, but that's yeah, not the one I'm thinking of. Yeah, that was written of. by uh, Larry Cohen mm-hmm. and there, and yeah. it was about what's his name getting trapped in the booth by the sniper. Yeah, Colin he wanted Farrell's to do a Whitman movie, but they wouldn't let him. A Whitman-esque movie. Yeah, um, I know Hitchcock was originally attached to that, but I'm thinking of. Yeah, he had a movie about uh, that he was, and, and I think it was Frenzy Frantic. It was uh, about the lipstick killer uh, who yeah. strangled women, strangled women oh, with a scarf. Oh, that was Frenzy, and he did that one. That was his last movie, and it was written by the same guy who did, uh, oh, rep, one of the most... This right here is why he didn't want people walking in during the last five minutes. Perfect timing, too, because we've only got a few minutes. We're going to go over, but yeah, this right here is why he didn't want people just walking in during at the end. Right. You know. and like I said, too, uh, he's mentioned in interviews that he didn't want people walking in in the middle because Janet Lee dies halfway through. And he, yeah, that and, she's and the this. Build. Yeah, right. Okay, we got 60 seconds. We're going to go in overtime for the last five minutes of this movie. Or as... Yep. Uh, Hitchcock called it the cool-down scene, where he explained Norman's thing, which is part of Ed Gein's thing, which was he wanted to keep his mother alive. Except that Ed Gein didn't kill his mother. Uh, She died of old age. But Norman uh, killed Norma, and that caused a psychotic break in him. So let's get a quick rundown of some of the other Psycho stuff. Um, Psycho 2, how do you feel about that? There were like uh, three, four legit sequels. I like Psycho 2. I like Psycho 2. I think that was pretty well well done. Yeah. There was Psycho Psycho 2, Psycho 3, which was also good. It's age good. Yeah. And Psycho uh, 3. Psycho 5 is the beginning. Olivia Hussey was great as Norma Bates. Fuck you. And Henry Thomas was (laughs) good as young young Norman. Another fuck you to you because you don't like it. Because you're an idiot. (laughs) That's a joke, people. uh, No, it's not. This is it. This is the last episode. Fuck you. We're all done. No. Uh, what about Bates Motel? Have you have you yeah. watched the the Bates the Bates Motel series? What do you feel? Yeah, how do you feel about that? Oh, you mean the Bates Motel series from the nineties? Well, either one. I mean, there's there's two there now. Was, uh, this one was just the pilot with Bud Court, where yeah. 
He met Norman as in the asylum, and Norman adopted him, and he gets out, and Norman left the Bates Motel to him. It was going to be one of those where, like, oh, my God, a different weird story happens in each room at the Bates Motel each week. And it wasn't picked up. And the second one was the over... You see this whole last five minutes scene? They spent five years telling all the information that was just in this one five-minute scene. (laughs) Yeah, right? (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. That's the problem with prequels. Yeah, I I say that all the time, and I've mentioned it on other shows uh, with you before, where we talk about, um, yeah, prequels. The problem with prequels is you always know where they end. Like, there's no... Yeah, you always know where it's going. But this scene was right here, because you had just seen that with Norman becoming, you know, showing the killer and the scene the dead noise. So you're like... What the fuck? (gasps) 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 So he did this as a cool down scene. You know. It it is, uh, I mean, the the very last shot is a good, I like the ending. One of the first uses of uh, a subliminal shot. Yeah. And I like that, but what kind of annoys me about this scene is um, uh, it's like um, uh, L.A. Confidential. At the end of L.A. Confidential, when they go out into the street and uh, the guy says, hold up your badge so they know you're a cop. And then the police pull up and arrest everyone. And then they spend the next five minutes explaining what you just watched. I fucking hate that. Like if you're not smart enough to understand what happened in a movie, this isn't there to explain what happened. Like I said, this is the cool down scene. You'd just seen that right. one, two, bam, bam, Mrs. Bates dead, bam. Norman's really the killer. You're just sitting there. <gasps> this is so okay. Breathe. Yeah, but again, you know, again, this, this, this does go back to what we were, what we were talking about before. Is that as as film goers who are in our like early fifties, we've seen so many movies and we know so much that. You know, this isn't shocking to us now, and it wasn't shocking to us when we first saw it. But for audiences who originally saw it in, you know, back in the day, yeah, it was that's a shocking. the problem yeah. is that you, what, what was I said? You can't go home again. That's the problem with a lot of people like me. I seen Psycho 2 first. Yeah, right. Yeah, you mentioned that the other day when we were talking. Yeah. 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 And then my mother brought this home and I watched this. Yeah. And I still loved it. It made me fall in love with Hitchcock. Because I could appreciate the yeah. filmmaking. But there's too many fans, the casuals, 
who have seen all the bad knockoffs and rip-offs. And then they go back this, and they liked one of the latter films better, and they're like, this movie is wrapping off the film that came out after it, because that's Uh, my first... Uh, No, because that's my first exposure to said plot point. Right. And this is a beautiful ending line right here. This is a beautiful ending line, wouldn't you say? She wouldn't even yeah. hurt a fly. And then, boom, there yeah. it is. The vision of uh, there. So there we Imagine go, Imagine if people. that was we, the first we, thing that you've seen of Psycho. You're like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that was a fun what one, man. What they were um, afraid so- of is they were afraid that people would be pissed off that the movie theaters yeah. were afraid people would be pissed off like that. Right. So, uh, Stephen, uh, give us a rundown. Um, we're doing some Halloween shows uh, before we sign yeah. off. Uh, what do we got? We're no, doing, we uh, we're, do, doing... we're going to do our own little cold down of this. This film was so copied and stuff. Yeah. After this, they were like, Hammer did four or five psycho ripoffs. They're psycho films. Paranoid, the psychopath. You know. Was 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 paranoia? Uh, paranoia. Uh, paranoia. Uh, yeah. Uh, oh, uh, I I was trying to remember what that movie was that had Johnny Rotten in it. Um. You know, uh, what what movie was that? I thought that was a Hammer film. I, I thought that was the one you no. were talking about that had had Johnny Rotten. Um, no. Oh well. But okay. like I said, you know, Paranoiac and uh, the yeah. Psychopath. There were like four or five of them. Mm-hmm. But each of them basically tried to do what Psycho did. But Psycho was the first, and it was the best, because it tried new things. It was dangerous because of that. That's what made this film dangerous in 1960, is that it was not afraid to break taboos. Taboos that broke in this film were so subtle that it was hard to really explain to people nowadays that they were taboos. Woman in a bra. Yeah. Taboo. Guys, look at a woman in a bra. Taboo. Unmarried couple having sex. Taboo. The, the casual mention of divorce. Taboo. Hmm. Yeah, I was actually talking to a woman that I work with yesterday, and she's in her 60s now. Yeah. And she mentioned something about being divorced, and she actually talked about that. So, I mean, she would have been, you know, our, well, much younger than our age when she got divorced. And she mentioned something about that. She said, you know, when I got divorced, I wasn't supposed to, well, not that she wasn't allowed to, but she said, I didn't talk about it because it was 
taboo. <laughs> you know, yeah. Like, yeah. Don't don't tell people you're divorced in the 1960s because it's you know and it I, was I, I funny. Mean, I got to it, but cat the reason that the don't let they had to force the theaters not to let people in because they were used to just making as much money as they can. You know, people want to come in and ending. Ah, fuck it. Come on in. Yeah, buy your popcorn. Go in. Don't fucking matter. Right. By the time I really started going to movies, it was like, you can't go in. Why? There's only five minutes left of the movie. Uh, Why? Because that's the way it is. Yeah, my whole experience with movie going my entire life, and again, I bring this up not to embarrass either one of us, but we're both in our 50s. Like, when we went to the movies, you fucking went to the movies. You just paid your paid the ticket and waited for the movie to start. Like there, but like I said, when I was growing up in New Jersey, we were able to go into you know Times Square and you know throw your money down and you could just go in and watch a movie from the middle to the end. But Times Square movie theaters back then you know, in the eighties were like they were the just last second run vestige of the old theaters. Yeah. You know, they the were old way run, of watching yeah. movies, you know. Not second yeah. run, yeah. just the old ways. Like a, yeah. like yeah. Uh, Clyde Barker tells a story about how uh he went in and seen Psycho for the first last five minutes and things like that, and how the movie has ruined him because he's seen it like that. <laughs> right, right. And yeah. people didn't appreciate it back then, but I'm sure. Imagine you're a gay person going in to watch Psycho, and you're like, "Oh God, I'm going to catch shit because I don't like being dressed in women clothes and stuff." They're going to say, "Oh, you're just like Norman Bates or a Psycho." But then you got the last five minutes, which stressed, and we really didn't get to it, that Norman wasn't gay. He wasn't yeah. a transvestite. Right. And I think we we talked about that a little more. Uh, we didn't get into it too much because it was we were getting towards the end. But uh, I think they expressed that more not only in the sequels, but like we were talking about, like the, the, the Bates motel TV shows, both the, uh, both the first one and, and the, the newest one. I, I think yeah. they try to express, I think they try to express that in those shows. And I think they're, and you know, I, I don't think they're doing it defensively. I think they're just saying, Hey, you know, like we all, yeah, you know, we all acknowledge that this is the world we live in. And, yeah, you know, people have the right for their, you know, to claim their own sexuality, claim their own sexual identity. And I know you and I agree on this, and I hope our listeners yeah, do as well. That, you know, it been for Hitchcock to play that lazy card. Oh, he's evil because he's right? gay. See, he dressed up like a yeah. woman. That means he's gay, and he killed her because he's gay, and he had normal feelings that he brought up in her. No, they right. made sure <laughs> to say, no, 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 
Well, like I was mentioning earlier, I've been watching that new Stephen King, J.J. Abrams, uh, James Franco show, eleven twenty two sixty three, and they've they've brought up a lot of really interesting. Yeah. Oh, the Kennedy thing. Yeah. Well, let's see if I'm right. I guess we've lost Nate for good. Well, the upcoming episodes that he wanted me to say was, one, we got the story episode. I got the cattle prod out. I need to record mine, him and his, but I've got some of the stories already. But it will be done before Halloween. And, yes, on Halloween night, we will be recording this in advance. Uh, we're going to be doing John Carpenter's Halloween, which I've never known before because I'm a, I am was always afraid back then that it was always overdone. And when it started out, it was. But enough time has passed where I can say it about it without it being a podcast cliché. So, yes, we're going to be doing the original Halloween. And I hope you guys enjoyed this. And happy Halloween, everybody. And I will be seeing those of you who go at the Knoxville Horror Fest Saturday and Sunday. So, thank you, everybody. And good night. Good night, sweetheart. Well, it's time to go. Good night, sweetheart. Well, it's time to go. I hate to leave you, but I really.